You're listening to the Fanfic Maverick Podcast, the show where I talk to fanfiction writers about their work and the marvelous world of fanfiction. This show may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. The following paragraphs are from Chapter 14 of Part 6 from a fanfiction series titled Pacify by today's guest fanfiction author, Chicken Pets. Severus sat staring blankly into Narcissa's eyes as the memory faded, absolutely lost for words. He'd known the story already, of course, at least in its bare bones. Harry had told him that he'd been intentionally inflammatory in the hopes the Dark Lord would kill him quickly. And some of what he'd said, and Hagrid had regaled the whole dinner table with that devastating wink. But nothing could have prepared him for actually seeing it. Nothing. For that wizard out there in the clearing that night, that had not been his Harry, or even his wizard prince. He had not been merely fearless, or merely flippant, or merely cocky. He'd been like a trickster god, a satyr dancing on the rim of hell, tempting out the devil. If Severus had been in that circle of Death Eaters, he wouldn't have doubted for a single second that it was all a ruse. That Harry was going to swallow that Avada cadaver like a fucking phoenix and spit it right back into Voldemort's face. How they could have stood there and gone through with he couldn't imagine. How they could have believed the Dark Lord would triumph when that starved 17-year-old boy had waltzed right into their forward base and made them all look like fools. How they could have. I take it he didn't tell you, Narcissa said, and touched the underside of his chin, bringing his attention to the fact that his mouth was actually hanging open. He shook her off at once, embarrassed. He told me, Severus said, that just wasn't quite what I'd envisioned. No, I suppose it wasn't, Narcissa answered. That boy could have been the next Dark Lord. I don't think anyone in those woods would have failed to fall to their knees after what we saw. She sighed and leaned back. But I suppose they did fall to their knees at the end. The survivors. You should have seen their faces when they realized your mark was gone. She gazed into the middle distance. Her expression closed. They should have known it was over the moment you slipped through his fingers. He was so burned. His face and Nagini reduced to ashes. And then that insane announcement, Merlin, calling for your head, my sons, like he had no idea where you'd gone. It was so impotent, so desperate. They should have known right then that the war was lost. He should have known. Severus wasn't even remotely listening to her. He was thinking about Harry blowing a kiss into the sea of Death Eaters assembled to watch his execution and telling them he was taken by an ex-Death Eater, you know, because that was what he liked. Traitors, or more specifically, the traitor that would end the war by his side before the sun rose, though neither of them yet knew it. My God, what a mouth. My God, full stop.
To the north, south, east, and west, four corners of the world, greetings from the wild, arid desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I just want to remind everyone that I absolutely love hearing from you, the listeners, and I am more than happy to take requests if there is a specific fanfiction author that you'd like to see featured on the show. A few weeks ago, I received an email from a wonderful individual who suggested that I reach out to a writer named Chicken Pets. She's the author of a marvelous Harry Potter fanfiction series called Pacify. I am so pleased to say that today's guest fanfiction author for today's show is Chicken Pets. She has been a member of AO3 since 2014. She has 24 fanfiction stories currently posted on AO3, 23 for Harry Potter and one for Hannibal. Chicken Pets is an animal lover and loves all animals. Cute, gross, and scary. She's also extremely passionate about opening dialogue about mental health and reducing the stigma around mental health issues, which I think is absolutely wonderful and so incredibly needed. Chicken Pets, thank you so much for being here today and spending time with us. Welcome to the show. How are you? Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm good. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. We have a lot of questions to cover today. I'm so excited. I love your series. It has been amazing to read it and get to know you as a a writer and get to know the story. It's perfect. But I do want to back up. I always like to start at the beginning where we kind of establish everyone's like fan fiction street cred a little bit. Sure, yeah. Let's do it. (laughs) Yeah. So I always want to know, like, when did you first discover fan fiction and what was that like? So I cannot remember the first fanfic I ever read. I have a vague notion that it was The Lord of the Rings, probably around 2002. And I kind of transitioned into Harry Potter from there. This is, of course, way before AO3 existed. And I was mostly on fanfiction.net, LiveJournal, adultfanfic.net when that popped out of existence. And I started writing around 2004. So I was in high school and published on fanfiction.net and adultfanfiction.net under a different name than the one I have now. Oh, that's awesome. I actually think it's really cool that you remember adultfanfiction.net. Yeah. (laughs) During the purge. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, they had all those purges on fanfiction.net. And then I feel like it drove a lot of people to other places. And I know that adultfanfiction.net was one of those places. And the interface is horrifically bad. It is. It's so bad. It's so bad. I feel terrible saying it, but like, that's an old school website. It really is. I used to have a really hard time finding what I wanted on yeah, there. I don't recall there being a lot of tags or anything. No, no tags. But it was an interesting alternative to, you know, different other places where, you know, people were getting chased off of all kinds of different platforms back then. Yeah, so. I'm pretty sure it was during the fanfiction.net, like the first time that they started purging anything that was rated mature, I, I guess. Yep. Um, and I was afraid I was going to get axed and moved over to adultfanfiction.net and then I was on both because I never got purged. It was it was unforgivable filth, but nobody ever found it, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it must have been tagged and summarized just right to kind of fly under the radar there. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was based on reporting. Like I think you had to be kind of narked on to get actually purged. So I think I was I was flying under the radar in terms of the amount of readers that I had. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, I would say that that's probably very true. 
I know that there were some works that sort of advertised what they were in the summary yeah. that were kind of against, you know, fanfiction.net's policy and everything. And those got axed right away because it was very obvious what they were. Yeah. But then there were a lot of other stories that just kind of flew under. They're like, the delete me. I hate you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I didn't do that. Yeah, exactly. So that's so cool that you remember some of the things that we had to deal with prior to AO3 coming yes, up. I was on there. I was on there in the olden days. Now, do you remember a lot of the old school Harry Potter fanfiction archives that popped up in the 2000s? Like uh, yeah. Fanfiction Alley and uh, I know there was one for Snary. I don't know it if was, that's still up. Um, but... I want to say it was Ink Stained Fingers. Yes. Is yes, that it right? Was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yep. a lot of that stuff has now been archived on AO3, which I think is great. There's no like author username because they were just archived in the open doors policy. But a lot of the old school stuff that was on those like the weird side websites has been saved from the void, which I think is great. I think it's great, too, because some of the works that were on these old Harry Potter archives were brilliant. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Did you ever read the T series that was on Ink Stained Fingers? My friends have been discussing it a lot. I'm pretty sure I did read it, but I do not have a real memory of the T series. I read like pretty much everything old school when I was in high school. So like, you know, if you're prepared and in between days and all of those fix. I recently read it in between days and had no memory of reading it until I got to like the middle. And then I was like, oh, yeah, this is my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't remember I, a lot of the classic like long fix back from those days, but I'm pretty sure I've read them all. Yeah, yeah. No. And thank God that the most of them are on AO3 now, like you said, yeah. they've been uploaded because I I know that I read the T-series for the first time when it was still on the old Harry Potter archive sites. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. So my understanding of the T-series is that it is not on AO3. You have to get it in like a Google Doc because all of Telenu's works were taken down. I think it's because Telenu, I think it's a woman. I'm not 100% sure, but they are now published. So I think that's the reason. Oh, and so now you have to get it like underground. Well, my understanding is this was actually we were just discussing this couple days ago because it was being shared around was that they said that it was okay to share their works but not to post them uh and that makes sense so now you have to kind of have black market her works yeah you have to find it like on reddit or 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 what have you but it's Uh, still around yeah that's good to know okay well next time i feel like reading the t-series i'm gonna reach out to you yeah (laughs) i'm gonna ask for that one you the goods oh good you're my plug you're my my new plug for the t-series that's great it sounds like when you were first writing fan fiction, it wasn't Harry Potter related. It sounds like it was something else. So I actually was writing Snary back oh, okay. in high school. So like 2006, seven, maybe 2005 onward. I think my published works on fanfic.net are some Snary, Constantine, you know, the, the exorcist, some Constantine. And then there's this movie that's kind of, it's not that well known, where Ewan McGregor has a clone of himself. And I think it's called The Island. And I have some Ewan McGregor, Ewan McGregor fic on there. Oh, um, my God. And I'm then also, so glad you know that movie. Yeah, it's good. It's a good movie. It uh, disturbed me that if you so think, greatly. Yeah, if you want to think real hard about organ donors. It is the most disturbing thing I've ever seen, but <laughs> yeah. so good. And then also I got some like The Dark Knight on there, I think. Oh, nice. Nice. Okay. But Snary was the forever pairing. Yes, the forever pairing. Oh, that's so great. I love that. You know, this next question, I normally save this from the end of the podcast, but I kind of wanted to bring it to the forefront this time because 
this is a fan fiction related podcast, and I think it's really important to discuss the importance of fan fiction as a concept. Yeah. So I like to get that meta discussion going as soon as possible. I have so many opinions on why fan fiction is important, what there is to love about it. There's so many things to say. But I'm curious about your perspective on this. Why do you think that fan fiction is important? What do you love the most about it? Just give us all your thoughts about that. Well, I think that in a general sense, fanfic is important because it allows you to draw forever from the wellspring of your characters. Whereas without fanfic, you have the source material and that's it. You know, I have read the Harry Potter series like 800 times, but it's good for there to always be more. It's always new stories. You know, it's like the multiverse of your beloved characters. So in a general sense, I think that that is just a gorgeous thing to exist in the world. I also think that it is really unfortunate if the only media we have to consume is filtered through the prism of money making, and it really restricts the type of stories that are told. So fanfic, of course, circumvents that entirely because nobody makes any money. No one can tell you you can't write it. And no one can tell you what stories are acceptable to tell. So I think that's really important. It's just the underground of storytelling forever. And I think that that's something that's been part of humanity for all of history. And we're in kind of a weird drought of what stories are allowed to be told because it's all about money, really, in popular media. Yes, I have been feeling for years now that it's unfortunate that we have given that role of storytelling away to the people that have the most money. Right. Yeah. And there's a cowardice that is inherent in that where there's there's a fear of risk taking, because if you take a risk and it doesn't pan out now, you can't feed your family because this is your job. Yes. Like if I was writing a book that was going to be published, it would be extremely different. (laughs) Right. Because there's money tied to it and there's success tied to it. And yeah, I absolutely agree with you that humans have been telling stories for thousands of years. And there's a reason for that. Like as human beings, we need stories, right? Told and like people, people who are you know, on the outskirts or the fringe of society don't get their stories told because of that. And I think it's important for everybody to be able to tell the stories that are important to them and to have readership and listeners. Fanfic is, we're in the renaissance of fanfic right now, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I would agree with that in the sense that like, we have a safe place now where we can post our stuff it will never get deleted, right? <laughs> the lawyers can just scream at the sky. Yes, the lawyers can go pound sand because <laughs> we're going to keep writing it and reading yeah. it and there's nothing they can do. And it's starting to seep into the cultural narrative of our society a little bit where you start seeing people reference fan fiction now in places where you didn't see that before. Yeah, like talk shows and things. Yeah. I mean, th- there's been a lot of shock value stuff which at the beginning like the first time that fanfic and fan art sort of got into the mainstream media it was mostly talk show hosts showing things to the actors that played the characters which i don't think is very nice but i think we've moved past that a little bit now and there's a little bit more direct interaction through social media and things of char- you know character actors kind of engaging with the fans and expressing some appreciation for them in a way that didn't really happen before yeah i think that Very slowly, the content creators are starting to understand that they have to cooperate with the fandom machine, right? Where we don't just want to passively consume things. We want to interact with them. Yeah, and it keeps keeps the, the fandom alive forever. I mean, like the Harry Potter fandom is 
churning out content like nobody's business. And it has nothing to do with Fantastic Beasts. Right, right. <laughs> nothing to do with that. Like the fandom is what keeps it alive. So, you know, if you want to sell some Ravenclaw cardigans, you better respect the fandom because we are the ones buying them. <laughs> Exactly. I had this conversation a couple of weeks ago, I think, with another author where I was just like, you know, fan fiction actually makes me more devoted no, to the fandoms more. that I'm in. You know, yeah. without fan fiction, I probably wouldn't care half as much as I do. Absolutely. You know? I 100% agree with that. Yeah. So really, all around. <laughs> it's useful we're, and helpful. We're doing the God's work. Yes. Yes. And I feel that, though. I really do feel that for fan fiction authors in more way than one. Storytelling is so important, and what you guys are doing is exactly what needs to be done because humans need stories. Yeah. We do. And you're right. There's there's a lot of drought out there. And so the fact that we have these underground channels of storytelling that are at our disposal now because of the internet, yeah. so important. And it reaches so many people and touches so many people. So I, I think that's really great. I love that. As far as Harry Potter goes, I get my dates mixed up because I was not introduced to Harry Potter when it first came out. Oh, yeah. So, so I get my dates kind of mixed up on that. But when were you first introduced to the Harry Potter fandom? And, uh, and what like, do you like the most Like, first time I, like, ever read, like, a Harry Potter book? Yeah. Yeah. What was so, your first exposure? My first exposure was Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. I think I was in third grade. I remember very vividly. So I, I, that wasn't the first book that I read. That was the newest book that had just came out. I read, obviously, the first book. And so third grade was when I started reading Harry Potter. And I remember being very sad that I didn't get a letter. I vividly recall that. And a large part of my childhood was being taken to the bookstore at midnight for the midnight book releases. That was a huge part of my childhood. My parents would take my, my brothers and I to, you know, Walden Books, which existed at midnight. And we'd get three copies of the Harry Potter books. And we would all stay up for like 30 hours reading it straight, all three of us. So hugely formative part of my childhood. When the movies started coming out, I did see the first two, I want to say, in theaters, but I am one of those people that has a very hard time enjoying a movie if it isn't perfect. If it's not exactly what's in my head, I just get extremely annoyed. So I have seen all the Harry Potter movies, but they are not a big part of my fandom experience. My first date with my husband was Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, midnight premiere. But other than that, the the books were it for me. Yeah. Oh, so those books were really formative for you. Yeah, and the audiobooks too. Oh, that's wonderful. I love that. And I love this idea of your parents like encouraging that for you. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like taking midnight. you to midnight, you know, <laughs> midnight. and encouraging you guys. And how fun that you could blow through that book in 30 hours with oh, your yeah. siblings. Nobody was going to spoil it for me. Okay. I would go to school the next morning. I'm like, I read the whole book. <laughs> I love that, though, because it must have been fun to discuss it with your family when everyone was done reading it, you know? Yeah, it was fun. It, it, we're all big readers in my family. So my parents are also writers, kind of, more like the news side of things. So... Yeah, books and, and just being very verbal and sort of literary discussions and things that that was always a big, big part of my my experience growing up. And that absolutely comes through in your writing. So you can totally tell that you've yeah. had that background. That's I was so a cool. journal kid, like journaling, one of those journal kids. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever do journal in high school, like with the yeah. newspapers and the things like that? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's so cool. I love that. That's yeah. awesome. 
I was a layout artist in the new school newspaper. Oh, that's cool. I did layout for our yearbook one year. And it that's it wasn't too much very pressure, hard. man. I don't like that. <laughs> I did the, the newsletter where I'm like, it's fine. And then it's done. And then you don't have to think about it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yearbook is pressure. Yeah, there was a lot of pressure. I, I enjoyed it because it was, you know, it was kind of artistic. Yeah. I'm not a, a huge writer myself. I like to write. I just don't publish anything. But um, but yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. So I think that that's really cool that you have that background and you had that, that those formative years growing up with those things being taught to yeah. you as, like values and books. things like that. Yeah, books. Absolutely. Yeah. I read lots of young adult series, but Harry Potter was one that got under my skin, clearly. Now, here's a follow-up question for you, and I'm insanely curious about this. I have to preface this question by saying that and I've told this story before that I did not read Harry Potter until I was 24 years old. It hits different like that. Yes, it does. Yeah. I, I knew of Harry Potter, but I was stubborn and I didn't want to be like everybody else who was oh, reading yeah. it. So I, I said, I, no. I've met a lot of people like that. Yeah. So yeah. I I discovered it late in life. And my experience of reading Harry Potter for the first time was me feeling very connected to the adult characters in Harry Potter because I was older when I was reading it. So I'm curious, with you reading Harry Potter for the first time from a child's perspective, do you think that that affected your perspective on the series, the story, the characters and all that? I do, but because I have read it so many times and I've revisited it at so many different ages, I have kind of gotten both. So in as a child and a young teen, I definitely identified most with the trio, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And I kind of had this perspective of like, oh my God, these adults, like get out of the way. (laughs) Like get out of the way, like let him do what he's doing. Like, come on, like, what are you trying to control this boy for? And then reading it again as an adult, I'm like, oh my God, someone take care of Harry. Who is responsible for this? Like what? Who Take Dumbledore to jail. Like that oh. was mostly kind of my, so I've had both. They're like, oh, I love, I love Dumbledore. And he's such a beautiful, kindly, uh, grandfatherly figure. And like, he lets Harry have so many adventures. And then as a, an adult, I'm like, um, okay, but he's not being fed at his house. <laughs> right. So like, right. are you aware of that? <laughs> Right, right. I like went straight to the social services perspective as an adult, which is reflected in my work, definitely. Oh, I see. And that's exactly what I was wondering, if your yeah. experience changed as you went back to read it again later. Just vastly, vastly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so funny. I it love that. It becomes much though. less adventuresome when you're an adult and you're reading it and you're just very concerned. Right. Very concerned <laughs> for the safety of the children. <laughs> very concerned for the safety of the children. I mean, even just this is kind of like a running joke with my my fandom friends but it's like welcome to hogwarts the only sport is murder ball and we send you into the death forest for detention <laughs> yeah it's true though yeah not it's safe true. <laughs> when i i mean i don't know when i think about all the different things that happen to those kids oh, at school at school where they're supposed to be safe and no, i'm just, just like gotta think about hermione's parents yeah where is the oversight here Where is the fucking oversight? Because like, okay, even that part where they're explaining, oh, yeah, the castle stairs, they move a lot. Be careful. And I was like, are you freaking trying to tell me that not once nobody has ever like died from like, yeah, fallen to their death? Like for reals, really? So one of the things that I kind of like to play with in my characterization is the idea that in the wizarding world where you can heal anyone 
from any like regular type injury, so not one made by dark magic or a magical in any magical way, that you can just heal it. That they have a very different perspective on what constitutes danger. Like when Harry gets clocked off of his broom playing Quidditch and he gets caught by the beaters and he has like a cracked skull in canon and they're like, ah, it's fixed. (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. You're not dead. Just relax. You know, so I feel like that there is the kind of the implication that in a magical world, breaking your arm is no big deal. Where for us sad, non-magical folks, it, it is kind of important. Like you might have actually brain damage if you if you have a cracked skull and fall 100 feet. <laughs> but not not in the Western world. So. I suppose not. It's Although a bit of that. the emotional fallout and impact of cracking your skull open and One falling to your death it. would still be with you, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and your friends when they're at your funeral. Yeah. Yeah, all that stuff. So yeah, definitely, you know, there are questions, right? We have questions. (laughs) I have questions. As an adult, I have some questions. Got some paperwork for you to fill out. Yeah. Now, speaking of questions that I've been pondering all my life, well, not all my life, but I mean, I mentioned that I identified very strongly with the adult characters in Harry Potter, and I found myself especially identifying with Severus Snape, which I understand it for a lot of people is a controversial decision, but there was something in the darkness and there was something in his history and something in the way that he approached these really tough decisions that he was faced with, especially decisions where you really don't have much of a choice to make in the first place. Yeah, or none. Yeah, or none. There was something about that character that just spoke to me like I felt like I saw so much of myself in this unlikable character. I consider myself a Severus Snape apologist. I'll ride that horse to the day I die, you know, like yeah. that's just my thing. And this is the first time that I've ever spoken person to person with someone else who most likely shares that same viewpoint. So, I was hoping that you could expound for us a little bit on that. What are your thoughts and perspectives on the Severus Snape character? So this is something that I have thought about probably an unhealthily large amount. I have thought about it for years and very deeply. And I think, first of all, the thing to say about people who identify with Snape is that the character is very ripe for identification because we see so little of him. He is mostly a question mark. So first of all, the books are from Harry's perspective, right? So that's very important to keep in mind. And the introduction that we have to Snape is from Harry's perspective when he is 11. And children can be very unkind in their ways of describing people who they dislike. So there is that distortion from the Harry Potter POV. But also, the only times we ever see him, save very few later on in the books, are in the capacity of basically the spy laying in wait in Hogwarts under the protection of Albus Dumbledore, waiting for the return of the Dark Lord. So the only times we ever really see him not in that capacity are walking to Malfoy Manor. There's a scene where they see the uh, the white peacock, and I want to say beginning of book six. And in that capacity, in that scene, he is not described in any negative ways. He is described, I think, as having like a silky voice and, you know, the sort of He's basically, there's nothing wrong with him except for he is kind of brusque and a little bit standoffish and, and everyone is afraid of him. But there is no problem with his appearance when it's not a Harry POV. It's just a man, 
Right. The other part where we see him more in his own capacity is during Narcissa's Unbreakable Vow. And he does behave very differently when it is not filtered through the eyes of Harry Potter. So the two perspectives that we have on him are Harry POV and actively Death Eater spy. Like he is with Death Eaters. You don't see him ever being himself. That incredible lack of any actually honest information about the character allows for a lot of filling in of the reader. So if you can look past the fact that he is obviously having a very bad time and he is not happy to what must be going on in the background, he's a very identifiable character. He's having a hard time. Like how many of us have ever been in a situation that we really, really didn't like and had no way of escaping? Most people have. There's a lot of identification possible there. Oh, and I love that point. I never really thought about it that way, that his characterization in canon is so limited because you're right, you know. There's nothing. There's, there's nothing. nothing there. Yeah, so amazing. he is somewhat of an enigma. A lot of us have to end up kind of filling in the background. And that's where fan fiction has come in for me. I have consumed Severus Snape-centric fan fiction for years and years and years trying to understand. And it's so interesting to see everyone's different perspective on who he is as a person rather than who he is in his role. A lot of perspectives possible. And the other thing that I didn't mention is, of course, we get to see his actual self only one time, which is during The Prince's Tale. Basically, you see him being tortured by the people around him and crying. That's basically what we get. There's no like pride in his works or anything like that. It's like a very sad and extremely different chunk of information right at the end. And one of the things that I think has bothered me the most about his canonical end is that I really feel strongly that he was too complex to be carried forward into the post-war and that he was killed off to avoid too much complexity. And I think that's really sad. (laughs) There was no need for him to die. Yeah, there was no need. There was no need for that. Someone didn't want to deal with that complexity, so they shoved him in a drawer and killed him. Yeah, so he if he hadn't died in the Shrieking Shack, book seven would have been a thousand pages longer. <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine how complicated if he had to tell that stuff to Harry? Yeah. Right? If he had to like say it with his mouth or like however he would have done it if he hadn't died and then what he would have been alive at the end of the war. I mean, it would have been an unspeakably complicated so I respect the choice. I also hate it with every fiber in my being, and I want the complexity. And I thought he deserved so much more story. Oh, I thought he deserved so much story, too. You know, here's another thing that I did want to, to mention, and let's see if I can do this in a, in a smooth, articulate way. But we don't really understand a lot of the reasoning behind why Snape does what he does throughout most of the books. And then there's that part in canon where we are presented with this new information that he loved Lily, right? And not just as a, oh, yeah, like, you're my friend and you were the only person kind to me. Like, he loved her. And I have seen around the internet so much hate around that. Yeah, Which is so odd to me because what pure motivation is there than love, right? Yeah, and it's not like he didn't let her go. He wasn't pursuing her past the point where they had their, you know, the falling apart of that friendship. Right. Yeah, the, the hate around that I honestly think is rooted in a difficulty in understanding nuanced relationships. Because you can love someone and let them leave you. 
right? Right. You can love someone very intensely in a non-romantic capacity. Mm -hmm. There are there are layers there, and for people to interpret it in a very narrow way, I think is just not very charitable, and and, and it isn't very interesting to me either. Right, not very charitable, and just kind of it's so flat yeah, the way that flat. it's done. And I think it actually kind of goes back a little bit to what we were talking about before the show. We, we had a lot of fun, guys, talking about yeah. a Severus Snape before the show. And, you know, Chicken Pets, you made a very interesting argument that I thought was very thought-provoking, that had he been described in canon as handsome, yeah. the perspective would have changed for all of us, right? Yeah, the Snape love would be obnoxious, I'm sure. Like, like, stop. <laughs> um, I'm sure. But, you know, I think there's something to be said for the fact that it is not that common for people to be able to rewrite a memory that they they hold. Like, the first, first impressions are the most important type thing. The first impression that the readership got was very specific, right? He's ugly, he's mean and petty, and he's scary, and he's extremely smart. That is the Severus Snape that we get in book one, right? And then there's some clouding of the water with Harry thinking that he's trying to get the the stone and, you know, trying to knock Harry off of his broom. And there's that that's, that purposeful obfuscation by the author to try to keep him ambiguous yeah. for as long as possible. So I think that he was written purposefully to be disliked. And then The Prince's Tale was supposed to make the reader re-examine the whole story with the new knowledge. And I don't think a lot of people are, are willing or able to do that. I don't think either. And I, I do think that for some reason, his physical appearance does have some sort of bearing on the way that people think about his devotion and love for Lily. Because yeah. had he not been so ugly, I'm not sure that people would see that in a problematic way as yeah. much as they do. Because that's what I see the most is, oh, you know, ew, ugly, gross, you know, yeah. scary man who just, you know, can't get over his feelings for Lily. There's definitely a cultural perspective around that right yeah. now. That is, it's new. The The extremity of it is new. And I, like I said before the show, I just don't engage with that whole discourse because I, I just have no interest in it. And if physical appearance is the most important thing to someone, that's fun. I can just not be friends with you. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. why would I be? What kind of perspective is that? Right. Oh, I'm sorry, my crooked teeth make me not capable of goodness. Right, <laughs> right. No, but th then there's that side of me that loves that that's part of his character. You know what I mean? Oh, like yeah, absolutely. I, I listen, I also don't like, and forgive me, I don't like magically hot Snape in fandom. Oh, yeah, I've seen, I've really, seen that before. <laughs> it really makes me want to dig a hole and lay in it. Um, right, right, right. Like right. Hot, hot Snape. I think that... Someone can be attractive based on their excellence. I find excellence and skill extremely attractive with no bearing on the person's physical appearance. So I am a big believer of let him be ugly. Yeah. So one way that I handle that in my writing is I don't describe him too much physically. I like pretty much just leave it to the canon descriptions and then I just don't address it because the things that are attractive about the person, you can't see it anyway, and you can't see him because it's fanfic, it's words. So I, 
I allow him to be who he is while still being attractive and a good character and a character that people sympathize with and love. And that's the most satisfying for me personally. It's satisfying for me too. I think it's also very satisfying just seeing him in fan fiction, being able to form these close relationships with people and experience for the first time that it is possible for someone to love you and you don't have to be like hot for that to happen, you know? Yeah. The thing that I don't like about model Snape, like, oh, he was using a glamour to make him uglier. (laughs) Right. right. And now he's gone and he looks like a, you know, whatever menswear model. Um, I think that that just reinforces the idea that you have to be physically attractive to find love. And that is not a story I want to put onto the world. Right. That is not how it works in real life. It's not. And that's not the story I would want to read either. (laughs) Like point to me, the A-list actor and the model wife who are happy and together, like point them to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's just there's something so sweet and pure and real about that when, you know, he's not that great looking, but he still finds love and he's still worthy of that, you know? And that's the thing, too, in canon that is really interesting in those those little tiny snippets we have of him interacting with Death Eaters. They are scared of him. Oh, yeah. Like, like, Greyback is afraid of him. They are afraid. That is badass. And I don't care if you disagree, like... There's a gravitas there that you don't see too much from the Harry Potter perspective because it's his teacher. Where like when it's just him interacting with Death Eaters, they're like, oh, after you, Mr. Right. Please don't cut my skin off or whatever it is that you do. Oh, yeah. Well, and how difficult would it have been, I think, to have to build that respect and that fear in them? Because it's not even him. It's not. It's not. It's a mask, but he did it so well that they're yeah. so afraid of everything that he does. And it's so fantastic. It's great. Yeah, it's great. I love 10 it. 10 out of 10. I just carry yes. that word. Yeah, keep that in my pocket. <laughs> now, one thing that I think is really interesting about Harry Potter fan fiction is that, you know, obviously there's a lot of different perspectives out there and a lot of different relationships that you find Snape in, right? And I've read all of them. Like, <laughs> I've read. Snape and Lupin. I've read Snape and Sirius, although there's not as many of those. That's a lot of like clawing each other's eyes out. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Snape, Lucius. And then of course you have a big swath of Snape, Harry. They're all very interesting to me. I think it's interesting to kind of look at the different dynamics of the different pairing relationships. I will say that Snary is my absolute favorite. Of all the pairings. Yeah, me too. Yeah, there's just something so compelling about it. Yeah, there's so much depth. So I'm wondering, like, for you personally, what makes that Snary pairing different from all of the other ones? And why is it so compelling for you, especially as a writer, to write that? So I'm going to start with the stupid reason. So buckle up. Yeah. J.K. Rowling gifted us with a very beautiful love story in Lily and James, wherein their Patronuses indicate that they are soulmates. And then she made Harry's Patronus a stag and Severus's Patronus a doe. So, okay, what am I supposed to think? (laughs) Honestly. (laughs) And she doesn't know. (laughs) Like, you can't say, this is a soulmate pair, stag and doe. And then to say, okay, so Snape's Patronus is the same as Lily's Patronus because he loved her. So did James not love Lily because they're mated Patronuses? Why not make Harry's Patronus and Severus's Patronus the same Patronus, both a stag? Right. But But she didn't do that. It's a stag and a doe, and they're soulmates, 
And like, I don't know what to tell you about that other than it's hilarious. Um, it really is. So that's the stupid reason. And like, it's right there. It's right in your face. It's fantastic. I love it when authors accidentally do stuff like that. And you know, that afterwards, they were probably like, oh, no, hopefully no one notices. Oh, God. <laughs> so that's the stupid reason. But I do really love playing with that, that idea in, in my work, because it's just so much fun. It's just such a good time. So the serious reason is that Harry and Severus have a lot of similarities in terms of their upbringing and the way that they lived in terms of the trauma and the abuse and the terrible things that they had to undergo in their formative years. And I think that both of them are very broken people and there's a lot of capacity for healing in a way that is only possible when there's that type of shared experience. It's basically the same character, but one of them has a lot more experience, kind of. So there's a like a guidance that is possible from the older traumatized character, the an understanding that is possible there that is just based on experience. The character of Harry Potter, one of his foundational characteristics is he has this incredible capacity for love, right? It's all over canon. That's his gift that allows him to end the war. And canon is his capacity to love. And despite his horrible upbringing, right? And the horrible things that have happened to him in his life. So Snape doesn't have that. He was made more kind of bitter by his experiences. And I think that the capacity for healing in that direction is also so great. So it's like two puzzle pieces that kind of fit together. They're complementary in their differences. and because of that, there are so many ways that you can take it. The problem with Harry and Snape is that it takes a lot of work to get past the animosity part. Yes, because they start out as enemies. Almost exclusively, yeah. There are some ways to sort of get around it, like in terms of when you start the story, kind of. But I like that it takes that much work. You know what I mean? Yeah. You really have to have to work for it. There's no falling into bed like easily. For those two and so that to me is more fun to write because of the work that it takes and yeah just how much depth there is and it's like it's not always good it's it can be you know the petty meanness is real and like my love for the character of Severus Snape doesn't mean he isn't a total dickbag like all the time because <laughs> he is you know I just right. think, I just don't think that that's a deal breaker and it's defensive you know it's an it's armor that he wears so I think that that pairing specifically is just, it, the, the potential is so rich. It's just, I could write it forever. And basically that's what I'm doing. <laughs> and then finally, I personally, as a reader and writer, really enjoy playing with power dynamics. And there's a built-in one that is incredibly satisfying to subvert. Like student teacher, that is like, that's pretty far in terms of an extremity of power imbalance. Right, it is. And if you just take that and just like, that's how it is, that I don't find very interesting. Maybe for, you know, something short that's just kind of spicy and that's what you're into, that's, it, it can be very fun. But in, in longer works, I think that the starting power imbalance allows for a lot of playing with the tropes and messing with them and making them backwards and making... The powerful character being Severus in terms of his place in society 
his trust or his giving up of power to be very emotionally kind of significant and intense in a way that I like. And then Harry, who is not a very trusting individual, but for good reason, giving up his own power in certain ways and learning to to trust is also very satisfying. So there's so much complexity and there's so much depth and there's so much potential for like digging out the old wounds that can be very painful. I don't I just don't think anything else has even a tenth the baggage and like bring me the baggage like I want it. Yes. No, I love that answer. I absolutely love it. You definitely see the potential for that baggage in the scenario pairing that you just don't see in the others because there's not that shared history. Yeah. And the history is multi-generational, the history. It is. It's multi-generational. Plus, I just feel like with some of those other characters that Snape does get paired with sometimes, sometimes there are so many old wounds that come (laughs) from those interactions that it's just not as fulfilling of a relationship, in my opinion. I mean, I like Marauders era things like Severus Remus. I think there's a lot of shit there that can be unpacked and that can be extremely complex. But there's something to be said for multiple generations of wounds being addressed that is very specific to Snape and Harry specifically. Like that is not possible in any other pairing, I think, in the entire Harry Potter universe. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would also agree with your point that Harry does have this capacity for love and acceptance that I don't see in the other characters. Yeah, he's a sweetheart. Yeah, because he can approach it from that angle. I do feel that Snape's ability to sort of step back and lower the shields. (laughs) Yeah, it's very meaningful. Let the shields drop even a tiny bit. It's very Yeah. Yeah. I don't feel like he is able to do that completely with the other characters the same way that he's able to do that with Harry because in so many respects, Harry is much safer. Yeah. There is another thing, too, that I should address about this pairing is the Half-Blood Prince's book because the moment Harry doesn't know who it is, he falls in love. So that's like basically the whole point is like the face is not important. He was obsessed with the Half-Blood Prince. He's funny. He's witty. He's so smart. Like all of book six is just about how Severus Snape is an impressive and very likable person if you can't see him and he's not speaking directly to you. Now, I want to go back to the power dynamics in a bit Yeah. as we talk more about the actual series. but. To introduce the series, I will say that when the series was introduced to me, the individual who was describing it said, oh, this is a rewrite of book six and seven of the Harry Potter canon series. And so it takes place in that time frame. And I dove in with both feet and was like, oh, my God, this is so amazing. And it is. It's so freaking amazing. I love this series so much. For those of us who have never read this series or heard of it, Can you just describe the series for us a little bit? What is it about? What made you decide to write it? So the series is a rewrite of book six and seven, but it goes beyond the end of the war quite a lot. But basically the premise is what if Harry reacted to Sirius's death in a little bit more of a realistic way in that he just loses his shit entirely, pretty much. So he's not sleeping He's trapped in number 12 for his own safety and is having a very hard time dealing with his loss and handling his emotions. He's at the very start of 
my series is 15. So just right in that summer before he turned 16, the blow that has been dealt to him by the death of his last father figure, basically, I think is greater than is reflected in canon. So I kind of wanted to start with that as a premise. And he basically is acting out and seeking punishment for what he perceives as a horrible thing that he's done and getting his godfather killed, basically, even though he doesn't really say that or really understand that about himself in a real narrative way. And who would he go to to be treated like something other than a precious angel savior than Severus? So he seeks out Severus, basically looking to be treated badly, which is what he knows from living at the Dursleys, of course. And then it's basically that premise and how it would ripple out into the entire war. So the point of divergence with canon is at Sirius's death, and then it follows very closely to canon and weaves in and out of canon through book six and seven, and then goes beyond canon. When you first started this project, did you envision this becoming a series like the way it is? Because you have seven parts so far of this. So, <laughs> like, yeah, it's, is it's that what you envisioned long. going into it? So no, I actually, I started Pacify, it was had a different name. I actually started it in 2008 and hit an absolute wall that in hindsight was a lack of life experience. So I had written about four chapters and then I revisited it in 2019 and it just started hemorrhaging out of me just like at an incredible rate. My idea, I knew I wanted to tell the story to the end of the war but I did not yet understand how much that was. So I knew it was going to be a series, probably, but I had no idea how much story there was inside of me that I really felt a real deep need to tell. And the more that I dug into it, the more things started just like spraying off in different directions. And these characters that like wanted my attention and wanted to be redeemed and the things that bothered me in canon for my whole life, basically, that I could now fix, I got a little bit excited. <laughs> Just and I was like, I'm going to rewrite the whole thing. And at about part three, which was sort of near, it's like the end of book six, I got a little bit discouraged because I felt like I was no closer to the end of the war even, let alone the end of the story. And it was so painful and it was just so hard to to write and to be in the trenches with these characters Yeah, that I almost gave up. I was going to quit. And then a specific reader, Danny, Danny Person, who is also an author on AO3, started leaving these super ultra long essay comments on every single chapter. And she kept me from giving up. Oh, thank God. Yeah, so anybody who's listening who ever thinks ever that fic that you're writing that they might be annoyed by a comment or that you might say something silly or anything like that, please comment. Whoever you're reading, it's seriously like authors will die if you don't comment. Like yeah. Die. <laughs> yeah. Even on an emoji heart, like anything, <laughs> it means so much. And it really, the interaction with readers that I had right about that time when I was really feeling low and it was in the middle of a pandemic and like things were not going that good. It is beyond meaningful. That saved you. Oh, yeah. Big time. Oh, I love that, though. And thank God, because, goodness, I'm trying to think, what would the story have been if it had just ended, you know, at part three? I mean, I might be overstating my ability to have actually walked away from it, but I was not happy with how it was going. Well, right. You know? yeah. I feel like I probably would have crawled back. <laughs> 
But at that, I mean, at that time I was uploading like a chapter every three days. It was really kind of a scary kind of creative mania that overtook me. I had gone from working seven days a week for about eight years straight to having no job. And I had a lot of energy and it kind of came out in this way. So part three and four just gushed out in a way that was kind of alarming. And I didn't really feel like I was in control of it. (laughs) It has since slowed down quite a lot. And sorry for people who are reading it. But that period of creativity was, it was a little bit scary. Yeah. So it, it really meant so much to me that that other people were experiencing it in an intense way, you know, and I hadn't ever really been in a, in a fandom community in that way before. I had always just been kind of in my own spot and minding my own business. And I wasn't really ever in, you know, any message boards or cons or anything like that. I was just by myself. And I tell you, I have never felt less alone in my very fringe obsession than I do now. <laughs> I love that, though, because, you know, I, I talked to an author one time They said that connection saves us. Oh, yeah. You know, stories and connection are what save us. And I believe that. I believe that. And so like that connection that fan fiction writers can have with the readership and vice versa can be some of the most meaningful connections that we'll ever make. And there's something to be said for that. Of course, as an artist, you need that support, right? Yeah, some feedback. Make sure you're not screaming into the void. Absolutely. Yes, feedback and support and I think we all go through hard times with the projects that we are working on. And sometimes yeah. that does save us to have that connection and that support and, and just knowing that people are rooting for you. Or even just that they care. Yes, that, that anybody they care. cares. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I can absolutely see how that would have been so vitally helpful for you as you were going through this thing, because it's a massive project. My huge, God. Huge. <laughs> you know? Yeah. My I had God. Harry Potter books all over my open all over my floor and all these papers <laughs> and like, you know, that meme of the guy pointing at the like the conspiracy board. Yes. yes. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> You're like, and then and then. <laughs> so yeah, I have I have a um, when we get to the if, talking about like writing process, I have a couple of pretty funny stories about me doing that. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. I hope you have the like crazy hair to go with it because the guy oh, in that meme with the crazy hair is like, <laughs> and, like my the favorite. dark circles. Yes. It's like four in the morning. Nice. His eyes are like bed. bloodshot. Yeah. He's exactly. like, Ugh. yeah, yeah. I know that there are a lot of different themes and messages that I am seeing coming through in your writing here. And I know that at the beginning of the show, when we were introducing you, we did mention that one of the things that you're very passionate about is mental health and opening up that dialogue. And I saw that so many times in this project that not only do you bring us to the end of the war in the story, but you're taking us on a journey way beyond that. Yeah, post-war. Yeah, post-war. Because you can't reasonably expect that people that have been through all of those wartime experiences can just go back to regular life and fit in with their old life and be perfectly fine. There's a lot of psychological and emotional trauma that comes along with those experiences. And so you are taking us on that journey, which I think is wonderful because it's so real, right? There's no way that anyone who's gone through all that stuff can just go back to regular normal life and be a regular normal person without having to work through all of that shit. Yes. Well, like I said before the show, the lack of interest in... PTSD and trauma responses and things of that nature in the canon universe, I think has done a real disservice to the readership that 
has experienced traumatic events in their lives because it's it, it kind of points at you and says, why aren't you better? Harry Potter's better and his life was way worse than yours because pretty much it was worse than anybody on Earth. Like pretty much. It's pretty bad. Yeah. So he's fine, according to canon, right? He's got a wife and three kids and it's fine. And he's a cop now. Yeah. I have some feelings about that, but yeah, yeah, he just kind of picked up and went on with his life. Yeah, and I mean, any you could probably take any fifty-page section of any Harry Potter book and find within it a horrifically traumatizing experience, like any fifty-page section, and it's a large series, you know. So I understand the child hero thing that it's a children's book, and like the events of canon would result in a really, really adult aftermath. It is not possible to deal with it in the canon universe, which I understand, but I am not bound by the canon universe. So I personally have PTSD from medical experiences, right? Not wartime, anything. But anybody that has a trauma of any kind knows that you do not have to have been in war to have PTSD. So I set out to try to depict the reactions of the characters, hopefully informed by their characterization, like how would this specific individual respond? So there's quite a spectrum of trauma responses in the Pacify universe. Every character is different. And the various ways that their experiences manifest in their behaviors and their reactions to things are all very different. But that was one of my goals. And aside from that, I wanted to show that being healed first of all, is not a destination. You are never, it's never over. Like that is not real. Yeah. I am now better is not a thing that happens to real human people. You can function and you can have a happy life, but you are forever changed by the things that you've been through. And you don't need to be better to have a happy ending for you. You know, you don't have to be fixed. And if you are an adult 20 years past your traumatic event and you're still having flashbacks and you still you know, maybe you can't sleep or maybe you have inexplicable bursts of rage or whatever it is, like you still are a valuable and lovable person and that the benchmark to being a valuable person is not health. <laughs> right. It's not perfection. It's not picking up and just having yeah, you a perfect do, you don't ever life. Go back. You don't ever go back to how you were before. You don't. You can't. You don't. Yeah. You, yeah, you can't. Absolutely. But you're still worthy. Yeah, so it's a kind of just a forever forward moving type theme where like you just get up and you try to do the things that you need to do in your life and take your baby steps and, and it, it's good enough, basically. Absolutely. This kind of segues a little bit into another question that I had, and it's not the next one on the list here, but I'm going to pull it up anyway. Going along with this story being a lot about these trauma responses, you know, one of the things that I was so impressed by with this work is your writing is so dark and gritty, right? The way it's that you visceral. describe. Yeah, it's yeah. so visceral in the brutalities of war. And then when you describe the brutalities of the aftermath of war, you know, and you have gone into that a little bit, explaining where some of that inspiration does come from for you. Are there any other inspirations besides the ones that you've already touched on that you're drawing from? Yeah, you know, I drew this little Harry Potter fan art that I was trying to learn to do digital art instead of traditional, and I, I decided I can't. But I posted it to like regular social media, not fandom social media, like my real life people, because it's just a portrait, you know, it's nothing weird. 
and somebody was like, he looks so sad. And I was like, yeah, he's a child soldier. And they were like, oh, I never thought about that. Like, okay, how did you never think of that? <laughs> like, because that's honestly, literally the story, he's right? literally a child soldier. <laughs> so I would say that one of my foundational inspirations in terms of like other fiction is probably Ender's Game. And I love Ender's yeah, Game. Ender's Game is great. So for those of you who are listening who have some feelings about the author of Ender's Game, I also have some feelings about that, but we must enjoy the art even if the artist is doing some weird things, kind of like Harry Potter. Agreed. So aside from that, which I do agree is valid, Ender's Game is probably my favorite single book and it was the first time that I had ever read a child hero type story where it was treated with the grittiness and the darkness that I thought it deserved. Like if you're not familiar with the story, it's kids in space. Basically there's an alien threat and the government tests all the children of earth to find which ones are gifted in a military way. And they take them up into space to battle school to be taught to be um, military commanders. And Andrew Wigan, Ender, who is the main character, is put through this unbelievably grueling training to become this battle commander. And he basically has like a psychotic break during it. He's not sleeping and he's not eating and he's like chewing on himself. And it's just really super dark. And I found that so much more satisfying and so much more moving and meaningful and easier to identify with than anything where it's just swept under the rug. And that was the first time that I had ever seen it was like possible to do that. He was human. Yeah, he was human and he was pushed to the breaking point to save the world, right? Right. Extreme circumstances. Yeah, it's a common thing where it's like this this is the boy hero and he has to save the world, but actually it would crush you. Yeah, and and that was treated with a lot more realism in yeah. Ender's Game. Absolutely, yeah. where you do see, like you said, the grit and the darkness of that and it wasn't ignored in the same way that some other stories may be treated. He wasn't he wasn't treated like he was invincible. Right. You know, he's just a boy. And he's also way younger than Harry Potter. It starts when he's five, and I think it goes to about 12, and then jumps ahead. But that book is very close to my heart. I don't see how you can take a human person and understand that being mistreated in foster care would result in a lifetime of struggle against the beliefs that that puts into your head, right? Yes, That you're not worth anything, that you, yeah, that you aren't good enough or whatever it is that gets beaten into you if you aren't treated well as a child, that you can look at a human person and understand that that would be the result and not apply that to this character. <laughs> like, let alone the war. Yeah, well, and that's so interesting that you bring that up with his formative years in foster care, because even though he is living with his extended family, I mean, he's shoved into a cupboard, right? And in the little bits that we see of his childhood, he's constantly being told that he's not good enough. Everything is his fault. He is quite literally starved and locked in a closet. Yeah. And so much responsibility for things is put on his shoulders already as a young kid that are not his fault at all. And I feel like he really carried that in your story, especially through the war, through the aftermath of the war, because he's constantly feeling like everything is his fault. Yes. And then, of course, Dumbledore taught him that as well. Yes, so he, not it was only reinforced was he at taught, school. Yeah, taught by his upbringing, but then it was explicitly reinforced and he was groomed to take on the responsibility of the entire world, like in a literal way. Yeah. And the thing about Pacify is 
there's kind of this unspoken undercurrent that like the real unspeakable person is not the Dark Lord, but it's the Dursleys because the Dark Lord is handled <laughs> like the war is won and Harry and Canon and Pacify speaks of the Dark Lord. He's not unspeakable to Harry, but he does not speak about the Dursleys. So like he who must not be named, there is a root wound in his life and it is not the Dark Lord. Right, right. It was not formative the way it was with the Dursleys. Yeah. Obviously, I think we have to we have to address some of the elements I think, in the story. Yeah, trigger warning a little bit that if you're not comfortable discussing BDSM relationships, if you're not comfortable with stories that feature age gaps. It's gay age gap wizard porn with a lot of soul. Yeah. Yeah. So if that's not your thing. So if that's not your thing, please don't please don't say anything mean. Yeah, yeah. It took no, a lot absolutely. of effort. <laughs> and you know, the way that this is handled, I love the way that you described this before the show, because we, we had a discussion about this before the show and about how you decided very early on not to bring these elements into your work without addressing them. And you did it in such a way that you made the decision to lean into it, yes. right? Because yeah. a lot of people would probably look at this and say, wow, there's so many problematic elements here. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, it's yeah. dark. So let's talk about that for a little bit, because I think that's important. I think yeah. that it has a place in the story. I think it has a purpose. So absolutely. So before we talk about the age gap and the that sort of built-in power imbalance, I want to address something about the, the BDSM elements in Pacify, yes. which is this is something that a lot of commenters have told me, which is that they didn't want to click on it because the BDSM tag is usually on things that are not good. <laughs> And I was like, well, that sucks. But this is the thing. The foundational part of those types of power imbalance relationships is consent. And Pacify is all about consent. It really, it stares into the sun of consent. Like there is no shying away from the idea of consent. And it's treated very seriously because of the inherent imbalances, the teacher-student relationship and the age thing. So the BDSM element in Pacify is not just for kicks. It's not just to be spicy or controversial or anything like that. It is plot-driven and plot-informed, and it creates plot. So if you are looking at the BDSM tag and thinking that this is going to be torture porn or some Fifty Shades of Grey, like contractual slavery something, or veiled abuse, it isn't. It is not those things. And if you are bothered by the physical acts, for example, impact play or, you know, restriction of breath, that sort of thing, then that is in there and you will be uncomfortable. But it is treated seriously and it is not used as a shorthand for mental illness in a way that it sometimes is. For example, if a character is into something and they also are troubled, when they are no longer troubled, they are not magically not into the thing they were into before, right? If you're depressed and anxious and you really like being choked and then you get treatment and you're fine, you're still going to like being choked because it has nothing to do with that. Like it is not used in that way where it's like, oh, I feel better. Now I just want to have missionary position <laughs> sex for procreative purposes. <laughs> so cured into vanilla sex. I would <laughs> give it a shot, even if the BDSM tag is off-putting to you, but it does have serious impact play and pain play type things, but it is not treated as, it's not just 
to be pornography if that makes right. sense like it's it definitely not. is pornography like i'm not gonna lie it's definitely it is explicit but it isn't there for its own sake it's not it serves yeah. a role here it's the plot porn that's what my, my readers yes. call it they're like how <laughs> how is it still plot i don't understand i don't know <laughs> yeah. But it is though. It is. It it brings up so many questions, right? It's more like it's more like the trust. Yeah, it's complicated. It's a complicated multi-layered story, absolutely. So the second part of that was like the age thing. So Harry at the start of any type of shenanigans is 16, which is the age of consent in the UK. So if that matters to you, that is the case. And it is treated very specifically because I just personally don't think that it wouldn't be important to Severus, you know? He, he hangs on to his morality by the skin of his teeth with all the other things that he has to do. So it is dealt with head-on, the fact that he is absolutely not supposed to be doing this. It is wrong, not okay to do, but because of extenuating circumstances, he's still gonna. And there's a lot of guilt and a lot of shame that's dealt with in a very specific way and there are characters that are not at all okay with it there's no like and no one noticed like that doesn't really happen right <laughs> and no one people cared notice. yeah, yeah <laughs> people notice and they care pretty immediately there's an interplay of like Dumbledore whenever Dumbledore basically does something that Snape doesn't like he kind of reacts by crossing another line with Harry and it's kind of subconscious like he's ragefully acting out or he like loses his grip on his very strong no in those moments so yeah, the, the moments of escalation are all very specifically chosen. It doesn't just roll through. Like, he doesn't just decide he's gonna. Right. And, you know, I think it's important to point out that, like you said, it's not one of those falling into bed together one day no, kind of it's stories. it's fraught. Yeah. It's very fraught. Snape goes through these horrible, like, internal monologues with himself because he knows that this is problematic. He's not happy about it. He would rather probably it not go there at first. Yeah. And, you know, Harry's the one that really, like, pursues this He's in the pushing. beginning. Yeah, he yeah, is yeah. pushing so hard. And I'm not sure what I would have done if I had been in Snape's position because Harry's practically, like, I don't want to use the word forcing him because he's, he's not. Like, so the tag in part one is dubious consent, but not yeah. the way that you think. Right. Harry's pushing really hard. And he's what he's pushing for is abuse. Right. That's what he wants. That's what he's trying to get. And so it's kind of like the struggle to to redirect and like, you know, trying to figure out, is there a way to handle this like at all? <laughs> right. Because yeah. you get the sense that Snape was very afraid that if he didn't provide something to help de-escalate that situation, that Harry would have sought it out elsewhere. Yeah. And it could have been a very volatile, terrible, abusive situation. Yeah, so, and it's extremely volatile as it is. And there, I kind of play with, you know, Severus's canonical failure to hold his temper. Like, he flips out. He flips his shit, like, pretty regularly. Because he's under a lot of pressure. So there's this undercurrent in part one where there's a lot of Snape POV where he is the narrator kind of so he's not telling the reader that he isn't sleeping and he's in, under incredible pressure and he's not thinking straight like the pressure cooker that they're both in you mostly only see it from harry's behavior but like severus is in there also yes. they're in there together so basically every single decision in pacify is wrong and also right there are no decisions that are 
entirely correct or incorrect. It's all gray area from the start. Yeah. And I love that gray area. That's my favorite thing to it's dig very into. Gray. It's just shades of gray, but not oh. 50, okay? Because fuck <laughs> off. It's like a hundred thousand gray areas. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I got the impression watching the interaction between Severus and Harry that they were both having needs met, needs that they probably don't understand completely about themselves and about the other person. But like, you know, (laughs) I think that if I was a lot younger and if I was just doing a cursory read on this series, I probably would have thought at first that this is all Severus, right? Like he's the one controlling the whole situation. But from an older perspective, He's really not. No, it's chaos. It's a tornado of chaos. Well, and Harry, even though he likes to take the less dominant role in what's happening, he's really not taking that role because he's absolutely controlling everything that happens. You know what I mean? And and that's something that is a part of real BDSM relationships. The submissive partner has agency. It's negotiated, right? So in Pacify, there's like the surface level of who's controlling it. And then there's the deeper level of who is allowing that control. And later on in the series, it gets even more explicit because Harry is more powerful, like magically. Yeah, so he absolutely is. It, the, yeah, the, the dynamic, it's ebbs and flows, like who's in charge, basically. And like sexually, it's always Severus. He is the dominant partner. But in the reality of their life together, it is at least 50-50, if not like 70% Harry in charge. Yeah, I do feel like it's more 70. There are times in Pacify where I'm not sure if Severus is saying this out loud or if he's just like, you know, thinking out loud to himself or yeah, whatever. he does that a lot. There's several parts in Pacify where he says, I'm basically being led around by a string here. Yeah, Harry is the master. Yeah. Yeah, Harry's the master. Like, you should fear him because if I'm the most feared dark wizard in all of Britain, you lead me by a string, and what does that make you? Yeah, you know? exactly. Uh, yeah, so if, if the, yeah, the, the BDSM tag, so one of the things that I personally dislike in fiction is when top and bottom or like dominant and submissive partners are treated like, like a gender <laughs> or like some kind of inherent thing where you're submissive all the time or you're dominant all the time, and, and people aren't really like that. At all, really. I mean, we have people in the world who engage in 24-7 type arrangements, but that still, it doesn't mean that the submissive partner doesn't have agency. Yeah. And the agency is what I'm all about. Like, consent and choices and agency and acting as a an individual and, like, the interplay of all those things with different situations and different personalities and what each partner gets out of the arrangement that they have with their romantic partner. And I I think that's what makes it interesting. And it changes so much, at least I hope that it stays fresh, the relationship. It feels fresh to me still. I hope it reads that way. I think it does read that way. I'm only up to part six now. It's pretty far. That's pretty far. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty far. And so I still have part seven and, and like half of part six. But I have watched this relationship, like you say, ebb and flow yeah. in the, the dynamic and in the needs that they're both satisfying for each other. I was kind of interested to kind of maybe discuss a little bit what are they getting out of this that they both desperately need? Because, you know, with the idea that Severus is 
even though he takes on a more dominant role at times, he he is sort of being led around a little bit yeah. by by Harry and everything. He's in and love, I wonder man. he is in heels. love. And honestly, like Harry just tells him what to do and he would do it. Yeah. He would do anything. Absolutely. Part of me wonders if he needs that. Severus needs that because he's spent his whole life with someone else telling him what to do, yeah. right? There was the Dark Lord. And then for a long time there, there was Dumbledore who was telling him what to do. And now Harry. Yeah. All he has now is Harry. Does he need that? So you know? I think that, that Severus is very complicated because the main piece, the core of his character is that he devoted his life to undoing a single wrong. He's a very passionate person, right? His Patronus remained forever the match of the person that he loved, right? So I personally think that that, that hit the Lily and, and Severus relationship was not romantic or sexual. I mean, it was in childhood, right? And I don't think that... I Like, okay, what was Harry's most prized possession? It was Ron. Like, Ron went into the lake. That I don't think that relationship was romantic. So I think that the fact that Severus's Patronus is the same Patronus as Lily and not its, like, mate indicates a really super strong platonic bond. So that's my own personal headcanon there. And obviously, I think that because I think that Severus is gay, but people can have whatever headcanon they want, which is fine. That's mine. So he's passionate, right? He loves deeply. And he is not allowed to express that love in any capacity at all in any of his adulthood. So it's all in there. It's just in there, like a little tiny crushed up diamond that's just like going to explode out of him if he ever has someone to love, basically. So I think that the trust part of the BDSM dynamic that they have in Pacify is the most salient. Severus needs to be trusted. No one trusts him. He is a triple agent. He can't allow anyone to see who he is, right? So in the same way that Harry needs to trust someone. Oh, that's so beautiful. That's yeah. like such a complimentary relationship where both needs are being met there. Because you're right. Yeah. Like he's never had anyone that trusts him implicitly. Yeah. And I think, I think it was Aurelia, who's another one of my amazing essay commenters, said like trust falls can take a back seat when blood choking is on the table. Like trust me to knock you unconscious in an extremely dangerous way. That is like adult trust fall. Yeah. <laughs> trust me that I'm going to catch you. Right. Right. So the, the extremity of the trust that Harry offers to Severus is incredibly intense. And I think that is what they both are getting out of it. It's not even about the act itself. Yeah. It's the, the trust inherent. And for anyone who has ever engaged in that type of sexual relationship, the trust aspect, in my opinion, is the most intense. I really, really love that. And no wonder that it has had such an effect, I think, on Severus. It's had an effect on both of them. Yeah. Absolutely. But it's been profoundly satisfying yeah. to me yeah. <laughs> to watch Severus be in this relationship. Let, let him love someone. Yeah, let him love someone because this is the first time that he's ever allowed himself to do that. Yeah. And the first time that he's ever trusted someone else to be able to do that, because I feel like there have been times in his past where his love has been kind of thrown back in his face a yeah. little bit. Yeah, well, you know the people mean? have used it to manipulate him. Yeah. Yes, and manipulate. Yeah, like horrific manipulation. Yes. I trust you. You remember the shape and color of Lily's eyes. It's the most horrible line Dumbledore delivers in the whole series. Oh, absolutely. It's, that was such a cruel thing to do. Oh, so manipulative. So I think that. The fact that it is Harry 
who is accepting his love is also very significant because if anyone on earth should hate him, it's Harry Potter. So that by itself is like religious in its depth. It is because for the first time in his whole life, I think Severus feels worthy. Yeah. You know? Oh, God. <laughs> and it just, I don't know, like it's just, it's really beautiful just to watch him be so soft with Harry because like if I was in Severus's position, and I feel like emotionally I have been in the past. It is very difficult for me to be soft yeah. with people sometimes because I need people <laughs> to see me in a certain way, right? right? And for Severus his whole life, people have seen him as scary and strong. And you might not like him, but you certainly respect him because he yeah. will fuck you up, right? Yeah. Like, and so for him to be able to let that all go, right? Yes. And for people who, who might be thinking that the soft Severus is too soft? It's not. Don't worry. No, it's really not. <laughs> it's not too soft. It's earned. It's it clawed is. in small fragments out of the ground. Like, it's really... I mean, yeah. I was trying to get there. I didn't realize it was going to take, like, 600,000 words. But <laughs> it needed to. Yeah. It did, though, because it would not have felt as real. There's no shortcuts. Yeah, there's no shortcuts. Yeah, right. It would have felt like one yeah. if you had introduced all of that earlier, it's I think. Slow, slow because like, yeah, kind of like when you're trying to form a relationship with a cat, perhaps, mm -hmm. it takes time. There's a lot of trust, you know, it, it's just a big, it's a process. Yes. And it's then definitely a in process. The, in the wartime, so it really follows canon quite closely. And then in the wartime in canon, Severus... Um, dies having no idea if the war was even won, right? But the whole time he's going forward and he has these memories that he needs to tell Harry what to do. So in Pacify, spoiler alert, Severus doesn't die. He is holding this knowledge, not just over a student, but over the person that he loves for a long time. It's like the weight just dangling over them to crush them both for just the whole time. And it's very painful. And so getting past that point of telling Harry, you have a fragment of soul inside of you and you have to die to end the war with the added weight of this relationship that they have, that that's like the, the Severus like suicide of the relationship. So moving past that allows him to interact with Harry and with the world in a completely different way because he's like, I died and I am alive again. Like just that act the burden of his life being off of his shoulders finally is what really allows him to be honest in his interactions with Harry in a way that isn't possible until the end of the war. That was one of my favorite parts, I think, of the whole series, honestly, is when he's wrestling with that decision no, and that God, choice. It's awful. Because the grief yeah. that he feels knowing that he has this information and he can't say anything. and the, Or that he's going to have to eventually, but he can't say it yet. And there's no way around it. And yeah, it's very painful. And he has to carry it all by himself for a long time. And just that grief. Yeah. You know, it's just, oh my God, it ripped me up in the best way possible. Yeah. It's really hard to write. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that it was. I imagine that there were probably a lot of parts of this series that were probably very hard to write. What were some of the other more challenging parts to write for this series? So there is the technical challenge of like the battle sequences because I had never written anything like that before. So technically like the fiend fire in the room of requirement was very challenging and changing the canon in certain ways in that area. And just the bat, like I tried to make the battle 
more realistic in terms of the carnage. And I just keeping it fast paced was something that I wasn't really I wasn't really sure how to do. I'm happy with how it came out, but that was very hard to write. But in terms of like having a panic attack, like at the computer, <laughs> like trying to write, definitely the hardest scenes were Severus taking Harry into the pensive to show him the memories when he when he fails to die in the shack. That was so excruciatingly difficult to write, like on the Discord server that I'm on for Pacify, there are live reads where Basket, two to one Basket Case, who's gonna do the, the podfic, does these these live readings of chapters and they're that's spectacular. It's like I don't even know how to tell you. It's so good. But she just read that chapter two nights ago. And I got like visual snow, like it was so stressful. I got like the sparkles. Oh, yeah. And so, like my my the visceral feeling that I still have, even though I wrote that like last year, is so strong. It was so hard to write. So, the hardest part to write, and also it's like the easiest part and the hardest part to write is is Severus's internal experience because he does feel so deeply. Um, so when it's something that's not horrible that's happening, it's great. I love it. It's He's my muse. Like his perspective is my home. I love to write it. But when it's something that painful, it's almost impossible to write. There's a scene coming up that you haven't read yet, and I will not spoil it, but there is a very intense scene with Harry and Snape that is is kind of tangentially sexual. It's kind of complicated. That was so hard to write. I would sit down and then just like wander away. Like, I just walk away from my computer and I'd be like, why am I doing the dishes? <laughs> now, is it because it's the emotions that you have to deal with yeah. during that scene are difficult or is it something else? It's like you have to, like, feel it and then also explain it. <laughs> it has to be logical. Like, you have to show the thought processes of the character. And I live for internal struggle and, and internal discussion like that's that's one of the things that I like the most to to create but when it the subject matter is so painful emotionally like this is a little bit different but it might illustrate the point better when I, I write like one Voldemort POV and I had a really good time illustrating with his thought processes how delusional he is where it's like following his thought processes through this like nutcase arc of like what he thinks is going on and of course the audience knows what's really going on and it's like totally wrong so it's like capturing the internal state of the character through their thought processes and if you're like let's go into Voldemort and like look he's he's so wrong isn't that fun is a lot easier to write than like why does this hurt so bad <laughs> like why is this so painful and trying to communicate that viscerally to the reader through just narrative thoughts, especially such an analytical character. It's very hard. Yeah. Well, you know, I imagine that Snape, had he been a real person, would have difficulty explaining that himself. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because explaining his emotional state of mind probably does not come naturally, right? He's way too analytical for that. It's not that he doesn't feel anything. I'm, the, I'm much the same way. You know, I'm very analytical, so I have trouble describing emotions, understanding what emotion I'm feeling, yeah. and talking about it just because I don't have the language. Right. So the Severus POV, it's like it, it's like multi-layered. You have the Severus thoughts and the Severus action, and the difference between the thoughts and the action is like where the emotional state is. 
Yeah. So it's, it's complicated, but I'm a very deep feeling person and very sort of emotionally intelligent. That's kind of my thing. So I feel the emotion and I can, I can describe the emotion, but that would be chicken POV and it isn't chicken's POV. It's Severus's POV. Right. So try to get into that headspace with him yeah. to decide how he would describe it or how he would be feeling it. it must be very challenging. Especially when he lies to himself, like unbelievably, like just such a liar just to his himself. <laughs> and so there's like the audience that's like, that's a lie, but it's Snape POV. I don't know. It's complicated. It's so you have to joy. kind of, yeah, you have to give us that unreliable narration. Yeah. And that's <laughs> as you're trying to describe everything. In, and and like, pretty oh, much God. all of Pacify is all character POVs. So it switches a lot. There's a lot of different character POVs, but there are, there's only like two little sprinklings of like God perspective. There is no omniscient narrator in Pacify. There's just through this character's eyes. So it's a lot of Severus. There's a lot of Harry. There are some some side POVs. Like you get a little bit of, you know, Ron and Hermione. And there's some Draco. And there's some Voldemort. And there are there's some uh, like a little bit of Narcissa, Charlie Weasley in there. So it's all unreliable. But the combination of all the POVs gives the reader like a pretty good idea of what's really going on. So you can tell when someone's just spewing bullshit <laughs> to themselves, which I mean, everybody I does that, but it, it's pretty right. funny. Like my, it is in funny. the first part, there's a lot of like, there is absolutely no way in hell that I'm going to do X. And then it's like, and then he did. Yeah, exactly. Immediately. He did. I think that's so masterfully done, though. It's so masterfully done because, yeah, you can absolutely see the disparity between the thoughts, the feelings. And then the actions and you're just scratching your head sometimes going, wow, yeah, why are you doing that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then you start like, you know, dissecting the unreliable narration and everything. And it is. I, I love that you brought up that there are so many different points of view that get put into this story. Now that we know how difficult it can be to write from Severus's point of view, is there a point of view that is your favorite to write from? So Severus is my favorite point of view by far. Because And he's the great bulk. So the hard parts from Severus's point of view are extremely hard. But the main part is, it's like I said, it's, it's like, that's my home point of view. I kind of think in that way. And a lot of times, especially at the beginning when I was first writing, you know, the first three parts, I had problems with dropping into Severus's point of view without meaning to and then finding it in editing and being like, what? You're not talking. <laughs> like This is not a, you know, so... He's my home for sure. But so, so like with Harry point of view, it, it's harder for me to write because he is so unaware in some ways of what, not only just what the heck's going on in his own life. Like, I mean, what a disservice everybody did to that boy, but just his intelligence in canon and even more so in Pacify is this sort of intuitive, non-narrative understanding. So he will know something but not be able to explain why he knows it. So riding that edge where his POV still makes sense and it still reads like Harry's brain while still being very not like kind of non-specific and not really narrative in its structure is harder for me. I can see that. You know, there are so many parts in Pacify where Snape is trying so hard to understand where Harry's coming from, or trying to get him to explain something. Yeah. And you're so right. There are so many times when Harry's just sitting there going, I don't know. And he shrugs his shoulders like, I don't know. And he's totally right, but he doesn't know why. He, why. Why do I think? Yeah. So yeah, that makes so much sense that he's more 
intuitively intelligent in the way that he intuitively understands the way things work or that he can do something doesn't understand how it works or why and he he intuitively understands the people around him but cannot analyze it so it's that that's a little bit more challenging for me but in terms of like harry's like kind of sassy internal thoughts where it's it's not in that category that is a little bit more like how I like his personality style is a little bit more close to how I am, whereas my kind of analytical style is more Severus. So it's easier to write the analytical part, but teasing out Severus's emotional state is not easy. So Harry's emotional state is a little bit more natural for me. Oh, probably I love the easiest that. dialogue though is Ron Weasley. My God. <laughs> you make him so funny into my brain i don't know what it is it's like <laughs> you... he just says stuff and i'm like god what an awful thing to say it's perfect <laughs> i have greatly enjoyed the dialogue coming out of ron what a bastard that boy is oh i, I, I know. love him so much yeah he no is filter. he's so sassy though and no filter like yeah talk about he saying just exactly what you were thinking says what he yeah And it's just so funny to me. So every time that he makes an appearance and he says something so off the wall, I'm just like, oh, Ron, that's so funny. (laughs) I love you. Yeah, Ron is hilarious. I love him. Um, Yeah, he's like the Ron Weasley character in Pacify is just if you take the seed of Ron Weasley is very loyal and take it to its logical extreme. That's that's what he is. Now, I imagine that there have probably been some scenes that were your favorite to write. We've talked about the ones that were more emotional and difficult, but. I'm sure that you have some favorites as well. Which ones have been your favorite so far? So my favorite to write, probably saving Severus from death, because I had that like crystallized goal in my phone notes for like two years. (laughs) And it took so long. And I every time I thought I was going to be like close, there's some other thing that I needed to handle. So finally being able like the the seeds that I planted along the way to make that possible. Oh God, it felt so good to finally be like done. <laughs> oh, that must have been so satisfying oh, to Lord. finally get to that point. It was like, yeah, my skeleton fell out of my body. It was, it was <laughs> awesome. Um, and then I also the other favorite scene probably. I mean, there are lots. I have a very good time writing the hilarious parts. There's a lot of parts of Pacify. I know, like we've mostly been talking about the 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 like serious dark kind of parts but there are moments of levity that are very fun so like after the war is won there is this drunken kind of dinner party where everyone is just hysterical with relief basically and all the survivors that have stayed behind to fix up hogwarts are all at having dinner and like just i don't know i have a really good time writing drunk people yeah, they were all so rip-roaring drunk and just saying whatever they wanted because, yeah, yeah they're so happy that it's all so over. So happy and it just was hilarious. Not, there's no filter and they're like just making Harry like like tell what happened and he's really traumatized and like he doesn't really want to talk about it. And so there's kind of like it's their first Severus and Harry first appearing kind of as a couple and there's that element. So that was really fun to write. And the other probably favorite scene to write was there is a very loathsome character who I will not reveal who is kind of a predator mm-hmm. and right. I got to kill him and it was in a horrible way <laughs> and that I really enjoyed yeah oh I bet I bet that was wonderful to finally get to that point too where dead. you're like 
done. You are done. Yeah, I was stalking that death too. I was like, oh, I had that in my phone notes. Like I'd wake up in the middle of the night and just be like, ha ha ha, and like writing on my phone at 2 a.m. And then I, I'd have the idea and I'd think I was going to get to it in like a couple months and it would be like a year. I'm like, mm, I just really want to do the dead. But that whole thing that you have done on staying on task, right? Because like I can totally understand how there were pivotal scenes and some of them you've described that you couldn't wait to get to because it's yes. just so satisfying. But the way that you've paced this and been able to just patiently go about your way and get there and not rush it, not take shortcuts or anything, it's just incredible to me Like how much content we have here in your series. It's absolutely gorgeous. I am wondering about your writing process for this project because it is so massive. Did you do a lot of planning for this project? Are you more of a pantser? So I'm kind of a combination. I plan by my pants. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have a general structure. So it might be like bullet points of things that I want to get to. It's I, I think there's like maybe a name for that where there's like you want, have like the little markers that you need to touch. But I would have no idea how to access them when I'm setting out. So I might think that a certain arc in the story will be three chapters. And I have learned by now to never say that because usually it's like 30 chapters because there's just so much to be handled. So I am the type of person to be able to have sustained focus. I am pretty dri driven and like I don't have a hard time with delayed gratification. That, that's not really something that I struggle with. So the basic method that I do is I have mostly in my brain. I don't do a lot of like writing down notes. I kind of have them in my brain unless there's a specific scene that pops out like in its entirety, which sometimes happens. But if I write too far ahead, I'll think of something and be like, oh, perfect. Like the first version of Saving Severus did not make it into the final cut at all. Not even a single word of it. Because by the time I got there, the circumstances which have would have resulted in those decisions being made were not there anymore. So I usually have to scrap it. I have a document, a Word document or Google Docs that is cut content, and it's 40,000 words. So things get cut. So my basic method is I will write just straight out. I do not plan my chapters. I will write straight out, and then I will edit. Like, let's say I write 12,000 words or something, and then I will edit it and hate it, and then I'll edit it like 80 more times. Like, really, the editing is extreme. I'll rewrite it. Because if you change one line of dialogue, the ripple effect of that change line changes the whole scene, that type of thing. So I might do that a bunch of times. If something's really making me angry, I will cut it into a different document and save it and then rip it apart so that if I regret everything, I can go back. <laughs> but then after a couple of edits, I will break it into chapters. So I have tried throughout Pacify to keep my chapters between 4,500 and 6,500 words which I have learned now that I'm interacting with a lot more authors is like kind of uncommon and not that usual to be so concerned about the word count. But because I do have quite a large readership and it's being released as like a serial, like an old timey, like it comes out in the magazine, I feel kind of responsible for keeping it kind of consistent in terms of it, its length. So I will break it into chapters. So let's say I have a 12,000 word chunk. And I break it into three 4,000 word chapters. Then I continue editing and I'll write past it. So now it's like chapter one, two, three, and four. And chapter four is like a now draft one of, of the new chunk. And as I edit it, it starts filling out or things get cut. So then maybe those three 4,000 word chapters end up like three 5,000 word chapters or whatever. And 
I try to write three to five chapters ahead so that if there's a plot hole, I have time to address it and to make sure that it's going in the way that I want to go. So then I post chapter one. So now I have two, three, four, and now maybe I'm on like drafting chapter five. And then by the time it's time to post chapter two, I'm on chapter six and like that. So it kind of moves forward in that way. So I hit the benchmarks, but in terms of like mapping out chapters, that would have been absolutely impossible. Impossible. You would have gotten like 40,000 word chapters. Nobody wants that. And then I would be just paralyzed with stress trying to edit it to be released all at once. I am not capable of planning the details, but the big picture was absolutely planned. So it's a combination. Yeah, like a combination. Oh, and I love that because it does give you direction and structure without stifling your creative ability to kind of just see where the story takes you. And it was a learning process too. I was not, I had taken an eight year break from writing and I just started writing Pacify. So when you read the early parts of Pacify for people who haven't read it, it is not to the standard of the later parts. People will, I'm sure any of my fandom friends who are listening to this are like, shut up, chicken, it's fine. But there are some certain things that like, I don't, there are some, you know, flawed POVs and some things like that, that I have improved vastly because of just the sheer bulk of the story. So like the characterizations, I always kind of had pretty strong in my brain, but the, just the, the writing skill and understanding how to be a writer, I did not know how to do (laughs) at the beginning. Yeah. But I want to draw that out here just a little bit because you know, fan fiction writers, they come in all kinds of experience levels. And there are some that started very recently with the pandemic. And there are some that have been writing for, you know, 40 years. I do imagine that with this project, especially you have learned a lot about the writing process. Yeah. So if you were to give some, you know, advice to writers out there, maybe writers who are less experienced, what would you tell them? So this is the most important thing that I think is critical for a new writer. You know when you write something and you think it's good and then you read it again and you're like, what is this trash? <laughs> yeah, like what the fuck? <laughs> what is this? Did I write this? Why am I so dumb? You know, that that stage is normal and I think it's a huge flaw being so like embarrassed by the thing that you produce that you can't force yourself to read it back. It doesn't come out good. Mine doesn't come out good. It doesn't come out like polished and it doesn't come out evocative and it doesn't come out even grammatically correct at all. And the editing and the reading back and the reading it out loud and being able to sit in the discomfort of it not being perfect is the most important thing, in my opinion. Because I will look back at my old writing and be like, this is unspeakably cringe. Because you grow as a writer, even like in short periods of time. But being too shy to read what you have written and thinking that you can just put it out into the world and hope for the best is a disservice to the writer. I love the way that you put that, being able to sit in that discomfort. Because it's uncomfortable. I'm a huge proponent of that. Yeah. Yeah. That there are so many things that are worth doing in life. And some of those things require us to sit in that discomfort and confront it. Tolerate it. Yeah. Yeah. The first time I ever thought of that, because I will stare at my horrible thing and like chip at it until it's good. It's my personality style, I guess. I don't know. Maybe I was taught to do that. But the first time that I ever thought of this as being maybe not a universal quality where you're willing to dig into the dirt and kind of carve at it and keep coming back to it until you are happy with it 
wasn't just other writers saying like, how can you read your own work? Isn't it embarrassing to read your own work? Kind of like watching yourself on TV or whatever, you know? And I was like, well, no, because I've read it 800,000 times. Like if I didn't like it, I wouldn't have published it basically. So that was the first inkling that like people write it and then just like post it so that it's away from them because they don't want to see it anymore. The second part was reading other fics where there is a certain thing that I have noticed a couple of times where it's a really well-written story and there aren't any typos or, you know, any technical problems like that. And it's insightful and poetic and all the things that I like. And then if it's an explicit story, it gets to the explicit part and then the quality tanks. And I knew it was because they were embarrassed to edit it because they were embarrassed of their own smut. Oh, and I was like, oh, yes. no, that's definitely what is happening here. And like that, it is embarrassing, especially if you are younger and like this is a new thing for you. And like maybe you were taught to be embarrassed. You got to push through the embarrassment for editing. Yeah. Confront it. Yeah. And deal with it. And read it again and read it again and read it again. I absolutely love that. Fearlessly confronting. Your garbage. Yeah. Fearlessly confront the garbage because yeah. that's the only way to move through it, right? Yes. And so I love that. there is a period in my writing process where every single chapter I hate, hate it. I'm not just like bleeding out these polished chapters even at all. I might draft something and it doesn't get published for a month and a half because it's in process. It's being refined and like you don't have to be like that. That's a, like a little bit extreme, I think, to be working on it to that extent. But I just want to make it very clear that it doesn't come out raw what you are reading. Right. A lot of work goes into the final finished. Product. Yeah. And the other, this is just like a small thing, but I think it's really important to let a piece of writing rest. Because if you write something and you edit it and edit it and edit it, your brain knows what you meant. And your brain will autocorrect what's on the page while you're reading it to yourself. Yeah. So what you do or what I do is I will think something is finished and then I will do another two edits right before posting, like the night before in the morning of probably. And at that point, I have kind of forgotten the specifics of what I meant it to be and all that's left is what it is. And that is the final polishing because you're no longer doing the polish in your brain. It has to be on the page. That helps a lot. So giving yourself that distance. Let it rest. Bit. Yeah. Edit it and then post it. And I know that the impatience of posting and wanting feedback is very tense. I also feel that. <laughs> it's very real. <laughs> but the rest period has been really integral to the quality that I am now able to put out. Oh, those are some beautiful points. Thank you so much for sharing those. I know there are a lot of writers out there who just they love hearing the processes from other writers and they love hearing the advice because I think we could all use it, you know, yeah, in our own projects, absolutely. whatever they might be. And the writers that I interact with now have definitely shown me that there is an endless amount of techniques to produce great writing. There is not like a thing that you're supposed to do, but I think those are pretty universal. Yeah, like, read I would back. agree. <laughs> That's <Yes>. pretty <laughs> universal. And people, it's not, it's not always fun. You're like, oh, God. Like, and then maybe you want to start over, but you hate it and it's like horrible and you just want to start over, cut it, put it in a different document because you might just be having a bad day. Never delete it. Don't ever delete it. I had someone give me that advice once. Some casually neurotic said that to me and I appreciate that so much because 
once you delete something, you can never get it back. So don't ever delete it. Put it somewhere else in a trash file or yeah, something if you document, must. And then I can go back and look and be like, yeah, that was the right decision. You know? <laughs> right, and right. if it's the wrong decision, put it back in. Sometimes you uh, go searching in the trash heap and you actually find something uh, something good. So <laughs> you yeah, never know. a lot of the stuff that I cut, it's like I was reaching too far to get to something that wasn't ready to be gotten to yet. It doesn't belong there, but it doesn't belong deleted either. Yeah, because you never know. You so never know. always save your stuff. Now, earlier in the interview, we talked a little bit about some very meaningful comments that you got that really helped you along in this project. So you talked about the comments that you received from Danny. Were there any other interactions or cool things that have happened to you from this story? I know you've gotten a lot of interaction. A lot of people are following you. A lot of people have been just captured by this story with good reason, of course. Were there any other reactions that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I have had just an incredible bulk of wonderful interactions. It has been just an amazing experience having so many people care. I've had a lot of direct messages. You know, people will find me on Discord or on Tumblr, and I have gotten basically letters saying how Pacify has impacted people's lives, which is very special to me, but they're also very private. So I will not say any specifics, but for those of you who have reached out to me privately, those are all very meaningful. There has been an incredible amount of literary criticism on Pacify, which I really love. And it was kind of scary at first because people were really like picking it apart. And I wasn't really super ready. It's like, oh my God, you know, like getting into the symbolism and like Easter eggs that I had sort of put in there and, and, and people who are really, really close readers. But that the people who do that, it has been very helpful to me to know ahead of time if I'm bringing the reader along in the way that I want to, because I can tell if I'm redirecting attention the way that I want, if I'm, you know obfuscating things or if my if my foreshadowing is is at the bright pitch where I want it to be or if it's too heavy-handed or whatever so the people who literary like lit crick people who are in there just digging into the guts of it ha has been very helpful to me just as a writer and then there are a couple of people who comment every single chapter and it's just like a heart or a couple of hearts or like a little a thing or like chapter kudos I really like that this is one of the things, like I was saying earlier about commenting, the nature of AO3, I don't know really about too many other platforms. I know this is the main one. It's impossible to tell if people are reading the story and if you have kept readership without comments of some kind. It's not necessary to say anything at all, but hits could just be somebody opening it and then closing it. So to know that people are reading it week after week after week after week after week, like that is very meaningful to any author that is writing a work in progress because a lot of people don't read those. And it is quite impossible to write something of this complexity without knowing that people care. So those ones, like there's one person, one reader who just will put this like wall of hearts. It's like a whole, like 800 hearts. And you have to like scroll past it. It's great. I love stuff I love like that. that. Oh, and I love that you pointed that out and that you shared that with people because I'm on the fan fiction Reddit page a lot. And there are a lot of people there who get really uncomfortable when it comes to commenting on other writers' works because they want to. 
but they're afraid of being annoying. They're afraid of pissing someone off. You know,、yeah. they're afraid of all these things, and sometimes that keeps them from writing anything at all. Yeah. And so the fact that, like, sometimes the only feedback that we can give as a reader to show our appreciation is something like a wall of hearts. Yeah, or an exclamation point. An exclamation point,、yeah. something, and to know that you, as the author, appreciate that, you see that, and you acknowledge that. For、yeah. us, like that has so much meaning for someone on my side of the fence, right? Where we're just the readers, and sometimes we are afraid because we want to tell you that we love you, and we don't know how. <laughs> and so the fact that you can appreciate just that, yeah, absolutely.、And、I the, think that's beautiful. The thing about something like pacify, like I didn't comment either before this. I understand the fear of commenting. I have been better. I don't read a whole lot of fanfic. I'm very busy, obviously. But I comment more now, knowing how meaningful it is to me personally, and I know the people around me in my sort of fan circle are all trying to do that as well.、So、having seen how meaningful it is, there is one thing that I would say: if you are afraid of commenting, there is one thing that readers who are not writers usually will comment that they mean as a compliment, but does not come across that way to the writer. So this is something that I would definitely point out: is that. Fan fiction is not like a TV series where it's finished and they're releasing one episode at a time. Usually, it's being written. So, if you love it and you want to know what happens, please don't say "write faster" or "I'm dying for an update" or some anything that makes it seem like the author is purposefully withholding the content. It's very stressful and it's a lot of pressure, and it, it makes it feel like however fast you're going is not fast enough. And I know a hundred percent that people who say that mean I love this work. Like I know, I know that. But usually, we're writing as fast as we can. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And you're under no obligation to go any faster than you want to, right? Or like, like you're <laughs> capable of. At least for me, it's、exactly. like pretty much as fast as I can go. So that would be the only thing that I think sometimes comes across in a way that a commenter doesn't mean, and I, it's kind of sad to think that somebody just really wants to express love and is actually making the author that they like feel bad. Right, it, it is. It does come across as yeah. So other than that, like just, just say anything, man. Yeah, absolutely. Authors just want to hear from us, guys. So. Even if all you can give is a heart or an exclamation point or a happy face, yeah, or whatever, I really like the chapter、that. kudos. Chapter kudos、yeah. <laughs> comment that I think is very cute because you can only give kudos one time, and that usually makes me mad when I'm trying to kudos it. And it's like you already left kudos here and that little smiley face, and you're like, "Fuck you, though." That little smiley face. Oh,、yeah. I really wish that we could do chapter kudos. Yeah, so just write that and comment it. Yeah, well, thank you so much for acknowledging that. Last question of the day. I always save a little bit of time at the end for us to talk about any other fan fiction writers that you might follow. I know you just said that you don't <laughs> necessarily read a whole lot of fan fiction, but if you have any other authors that you wanted to shout out real quick, that would be great. There is a Discord server that was started by some readers for Pacify, and the links are on the Pacify fanfic. And a lot of other authors are on there, and so I have had the opportunity to read the works of. People while knowing them, which is different than sort of clicking on something because you like the summary. So a lot of the authors that I have read in that capacity, like Mouse Rights and Crow and Danny Person, like I said, some of the handles are different on on Ao3. Those ones are the same. There's like Slither Kit. There are a lot of people 
who I think are writing at a quality that is so much higher than the readership that they're attracting that it makes me really sad. Because I think a lot of the time a fanfic catching fire in a certain way is luck, you know? So the writers, like I was reading this thick Starlight by Crow that I really like a lot. And it's a multiverse snary and it's excellent. I highly recommend it. I like it a lot. And the the reader interaction, I'm like, read it. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> I've noticed that though, that some of the most talented writers are the ones with just, you know, average stats. Yeah. And it can make you so sad. Yeah. You know, it's screaming into the void. So I just think, I don't know how to fix it. I think that there are vogues that come and go about what type of thing people want to click on. So I'm actually really shocked that Pacify got the readership that it did because I have really gotten the impression in the snary fandom that there is, at least not openly, a whole lot of appetite for like school time because it's it's problematic and it's not what is really popular right now, it seems like. It seems like the main readership is mostly for way post-war where you can kind of skip over the healing part and they're already healed and you don't have to deal with the the grit and the grime as much anymore. So I was actually really surprised that it caught on in the way that it did. Um, I'm very happy, obviously. But if anybody is reading Pacify and wants to find just a fuck ton of other great writers, come onto the server. There's like a spreadsheet of all the writers on there with their works. It's a good place to just wallow in, in talent. Yeah, everybody's really nice and... I don't know. It's just, it's a great creative community. And I'm very blessed to have seen people in the comments being like, let's start a Discord server. And me, I can, can be kind of shy being like, can I, can I come on it? <laughs> and now I'm on there all day. Oh, all but day. how beautiful though to it's have amazing. that interaction yeah. and that community. Don't we all need community? We do. So right? all, all yeah. the, the, there are many authors over there. There's more than I can ever name. Yeah. Thank you for those. That's wonderful. Shout out to all of you. Chicken Pets, thank you again so much for joining us today. Do you have any last words? If any reader takes anything from this, it is whoever you're reading, let them know that you're there. Yeah. Absolutely. That connection is so important. Thank you so much for that. Check out her stories on AO3, folks. Give her some love. You can find the Fanfic Maverick online at fanficmaverickpodcast.com, on Tumblr at fanficmaverickpodcast, on Instagram at fanficmaverick, and I can also always be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening today. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling.